0: Welcome back everyone to the Mastering Miles podcast powered by bioendurance, PT, and performance. My name is Matt Ferlindis. I am a Milwaukee area physical therapist that specializes in treating runners and running injuries. Um, Today's episode is part two of the Mastering the Marathon series, which with coach Jack Hackett of Infinity Running Company. Part two is a deep dive into really and effectively training for the marathon distance. We talk about a lot of different topics, and it's really a wealth of knowledge in this episode. We talk a lot about our volume, intensity, long runs, how we should structure interval workouts and long run workouts, as well as some of the benefits of running slowly. So I'm really excited to share all of this knowledge with you all and kind of create a resource um, regarding Proper marathon training. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, feel free to follow and subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as well as give us a rating. We would really appreciate that. But other than that, let's go ahead and get into part two of Mastering the Marathon with Coach Jack Hackett. Welcome back everyone to the Mastering Miles podcast. We are doing part two of the Mastering the Marathon series today. And of course we have back coach Jack Hackett from Infinity Running Company. Jack, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing pretty well, Matt. Thanks for for having me back. It, it didn't go so poor that you you dropped the whole uh, three-part series. So that's, that's a win for me. <laughs>
0: Not at all, man. The first part was a was a good success, and I think a lot of people got a lot out of it, and um, I'm feeling more in the groove of my own like podcasting skills as well, so I'm ready to roll today.
1: Perfect. That's good.
0: Awesome. So today, like I said, we're at part two, and this is kind of the fun part because we get to dive a little bit more specifically into training and exactly how we train for a marathon to make sure that we are prepared for the best that we possibly can be. And I feel like we have to kind of start this discussion off with mentioning of the said principle or specific adaptations to imposed demands. Jack, do you want to kind of explain like what that means to the listener and how it applies to marathon training?
1: Yeah, essentially the said principle is looking at, when we do training, we're trying to get better in a specific way, uh, obviously, like in the general sense, we're trying to get better at running, but when we do a workout, there's a specific set that we're trying to develop. Uh, so that's kind of how, how I at least imagine it with the marathon and, and with running is you know, maybe it's specifically working in your lactate threshold or in your ability to use lactate as a field source. Maybe, you know, if it's something like plyometrics, you're looking at the elasticity of that Achilles tendon, uh, Yeah, so basically just trying to be specific with what you're imposing is going to help you get a specific adaptation on the back end.
0: Well, agreed. And it's, you know, it's very similar to running a marathon. It requires a certain demand. And we have to make sure that our training, you know, gets us ready and adapts us really well to tolerate that demand of running marathons. So it's practically kind of that overarching principle that allows us to adapt and get ready to run the marathon as successfully as possible overall. So then when we talk about more like specifically training plan, there are a few different components that we'll kind of dive into. Um... Jack, do you mind giving us a little bit of a summary of what those different components are? Um, and then we'll kind of jump and kind of dive into each one of those different components.
1: Yeah, essentially, when we look at training for a marathon, uh, or just running training in general, uh, there's three main kind of things that we can look at. So there's volume, how much just total running, strength work, you know, cross training, all those things that we're doing. Uh, that's the volume. Frequency is... well. How frequent are you doing it? Uh, You know, like the dosage, you know, are you taking that pill twice a day or just once a day? That kind of thing. And then the last piece of it is intensity. How hard are you actually running at that kind of
0: time? So let's go ahead and piece apart volume first, because in some ways, this is one of the the key principles of training to run a marathon, because, of course that's 26.2 miles. It's a lot of volume in one race. So essentially when we're chatting about volume or like how much we are actually running, how much mileage we are putting down in our training, why is that so important for marathon training overall?
1: Yeah. I mean, like you said, it's 26 miles. So we have to be able to physically withstand running for 26.2 miles, whether that's you know two hours or six hours. It's a lot of pounding on our legs uh so we structurally have to be able to kind of handle that and there's also systemically we have to be able to handle it we have to you know burn enough fuel to be able to do that we have to do all of those kind of things that it takes to run 26.2 but the volume of running really helps us like develop the capacity to handle running for 26.2 miles
0: Awesome. Yeah, that's a that's a perfect explanation of it. And we can't expect to show up and run our best marathon if we haven't had a decent number of miles that we've ran already if we've had if we haven't prepared our body to be able to really tolerate that. And I think time and time again, a lot of research has shown that volume is a really important way for us to advance our training and to really improve our ability to run the marathon. I mean, especially when you look at the volume of some of the professional Olympic runners out there, they're just putting insane weekly and monthly mileage in that. It's kind of crazy. I don't, I don't even know necessarily how much some of them get up to, but I know some of them are at least like easily a hundred miles per week and everything. Correct.
1: Yeah. I don't know that there's any Olympic level marathoner that's not running at least a hundred miles a week. Uh, yeah, I, I would be shocked. There's there's plenty that are doing, 160 to 250 kilometers uh, a week. Some that are even doing more than that. I mean, supposedly Kelvin Kiptum is is having some weeks where he's hitting 300 kilometers in a week, uh, which is, you know, a lot. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, to say the least. <laughs> so uh, I mean, it's important to note that. You know, of course, again, not everyone is going to be ready to get out there and just all of a sudden lay down 100 miles, weeks. We have to slowly um, allow ourselves to adapt or else easily we're going to get very injured very fast if we just all of a sudden one day go out and try to run that far. Um, So what are some of the steps that we should take to start to really like progress that volume and slowly kind of get us up to the best volume for us individually?
1: Yeah, it's there's so many kind of pieces to it, so it's hard to say exactly where to start. But the common rule that everyone hears is like, no more than 10% increase at a time. And I think that the idea of that is sound. You know, we want to be smart about our progression and and give us a little bit more volume than what we can handle, enough that it challenges us, uh, or I shouldn't say more than we can handle, but a little bit more than we're comfortable with. Uh, and that challenges us so that our body then improves enough to then go and do that the next time out. uh That said, I think if somebody hears this and we say, "Oh, yes, volume is one of the best predictors for you know getting better at the marathon, well, I should just run more well, i like you said, we should you know pump the brakes a little bit uh <laughs> we need to have the ability to handle that volume. I think that's the most kind of important piece to it is to remember it's not just running more just to run more. We have to kind of have that physical strength and structure to withstand more volume.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and going off of the like 10% progression or just the age old adage that we should only progress by 10% a week, um, I feel like more and more research is coming out in terms of the acute chronic workload ratio, which is kind of more of this intense ratio and equation that kind of takes the past four weeks or so and assesses kind of your current week based off those past four weeks and essentially how hard you are working this week compared to the last little bit. And there are some like key indicators in that, that I've found that, you know, if we go too high, then we're putting us ourselves at risk for injury and things like that. So um, that's another tool that some people can use, but with that, I highly recommend um, chatting with somebody who kind of knows how to use that and run those equations. There's a lot of studies out there about it, but sometimes that can be hard to set that up for yourself and kind of know what you're looking at overall.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, a lot of like the tools out there for tracking your are running might have that built in then too. Uh, mm-hmm. Depends on what kind of training log you're using or programs. Mm-hmm. Hmm.
0: I mean, even Garmin, you know, if you put in a crazy week, it'll tell you if you're overtraining a little bit. So there's just so much of that technology <clears throat> and all the gadgets that'll tell you, hey, we need to pump the brakes a little bit or else we can um, find ourselves injured and not able to run at all. So for sure. Um, but overall, like, of course, we all can't get to that like high level of volume right off the get go. Um, So while we're working on progressing that volume very slowly, very steadily, like what are some other like levers that we can pull to get a greater effect from it while we're kind of working on progressing that volume overall?
1: Yeah, I think that's an important piece to it. Uh, The way at least a lot of, you know, I'll say beginner marathoners or or younger training age marathoners that I work with, uh, it's more about building an efficient Vehicle first. Uh, So, we want to get you, like I was saying, strong enough and then moving more efficiently. Uh, If we've got you to the point where you can handle a big, long workout, well, then you're going to be able to do the workout and not put into a hole that takes you three to five days to recover from. All of a sudden, the kind of volume starts to come on after. But first, you have to get stronger and then able to put that strength into use. So strength and power are kind of two different but related things. Uh, So we get you strong first, and then power is basically the application of strength in a shorter period of time. Uh, So we want to get you, well, strong enough to handle and to push uh, the ground a little bit more efficiently. And then that also just gets you into a better position to run. So for a lot of runners, especially in this day and age in America, we're so weak, especially through our core. We spend all day sitting and our hips are, are kind of pinched together and they're they're tight. We A lot of people run like they're sitting in a chair is always the analogy that that I use where your, your butt's kind of sat back. And I, I do this with almost every athlete that I, I work with. Have you kind of act like you're sitting in a chair and try to lift your leg up? And you'll feel that resistance inherent to just that position. And then if you stand up nice and tall and get your hip underneath you, you can feel how easy that is to get your leg to lift all the way up. And that's really what we're trying to do as a runner is to get to the point where we can keep your hip in a good position because you can get a lot more out of your stride. And it's just free range of motion. You know, if you could add an extra inch onto every single stride, you took, you would be a lot faster. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's, Part of what we're trying to do is to get you strong enough to handle keeping your body in a good position and then also strong enough to handle running for a while, including 26.2 miles.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's building up that foundation first before we can start to build that volume a little bit. I see it in a lot of the clients and patients that I work with that come in with different running injuries. And I always have the saying that running is a very single leg sport, you're never on two feet at one time when you are running. And so sometimes I find that those runners that are dealing with, you know, injuries, or just have had a hard time building up volume um, in a healthy manner lack a lot of stability on a single leg where tasks, you know, as simple as doing a single leg squat or bouncing on one foot are very difficult and they don't quite have that foundational strength and stability to tolerate that movement. And then when we multiply that instability over the course of 26.2 miles, that will have very compound effects and will kind of wear down muscles, tendons, bones, everything like that. So it's all about really building that foundation a little bit.
1: Yeah, and that's a great point. Like, I have an athlete that I just started working with who's uh, got a background in lifting. I mean, he was a lifter for a long time. And then during the pandemic, that closed. And so he picked up running. So he's very strong. You know, he's part of the 1,000 thousand pound club, uh, which is like a deadlift, squat, a whole bunch of other things. But so very strong, but couldn't do a single leg squat very well. Uh, that single leg stability and strength is all running really is, is it's a bunch of dynamic single leg squats just over and over and over again. Uh, And like you said, having some strength is one kind of piece to it, but having the endurance to not let that start to fall apart, you might be able to do one single leg squat with perfect form. But for some people, the challenge is doing that over and over and over again, you start to fatigue and the hip starts to sag And then all of a sudden that, you know, IT band can't handle the force that you're putting through it. And then your knee starts to flare up and all sorts of kind of things happen as you start to unravel.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like to explain it a lot as, um, you know, running enacts a certain amount of load on our body. And when we are actually running, our body is actually physically breaking down. Um, essentially our muscles are becoming weaker. Everything is, is breaking down a little bit. And if we don't have that capacity or the strength or stability in our muscles, tendons, ligaments, bones to tolerate that load, that's when injuries happen. And that's why it needs to be a very slow process of building that volume and building that foundation. The body is super good at adapting and will adapt when we apply those those demands, but we just have to do it in a very um, orderly manner and a very safe manner to make sure that we're getting those adaptations and we're not pushing too far um, to cause an injury overall,
1: yeah, I've always always heard, and my college coach used to always say like drastic changes bring drastic results, and it's not usually good drastic <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: If you jump volume like crazy and you know double or triple every single run distance for a week, you'll probably get injured pretty quick,,
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah,
1: maybe you'll set the world record if you can keep that up, but probably not. <laughs>
0: Probably not. Um, And of course, we'll talk a little bit more about like strength and plyometrics um, a little bit more in part three of this series, for sure, of all of those other little things that help us. But we need to make sure that individuals understand the importance of that for sure. Before we start building tons of volume, we need that foundation to build it off of. So um, any other levers that um, runners should be looking at to make sure that we're addressing Um, other than like strength plyometrics and those types of things?
1: So when we talk about volume, uh, you know, kind of specifically with that, like there's a few ways that we can mean that too. So it's not just running mileage. It can also just be a look at the amount of time you're spending working out. Uh, So that strength training volume is is kind of one piece and lever that we can pull. Uh, The other kind of piece to volume is like the aerobic workload that you're under. So for somebody that maybe doesn't have the strength to structurally handle all of that running, and I'm sure this, most people that are listening to this are familiar with cross training, you know, biking or swimming, uh, which is dangerous as as a gateway to becoming a triathlete, (laughs) uh, but biking, swimming, elliptical, uh, even with the lifting, you can do that in a way that does have some kind of cardiac, uh, you know strain or like an aerobic strain. Uh but all of those kind of things are are other ways that you can get some of those same aerobic developments uh without pounding on the legs. Mm-hmm. So those are are some of the other kind of things that we can look at. As far as other levers that are kind of important to pull, especially for for some of those beginners. Uh you know, this strength is probably honestly the biggest one, just getting people strong enough to handle that, which, which I know we can kind have of hinted at, but there's a lot of other little things. And and like we said, we'll we're going to save that for part three.
0: Cool. Awesome. Um, yeah, as, as speaking as a triathlete myself here, um, I always find that when I've done a big block of training on the bike, um, obviously very low impact on the joints, but very high aerobic, um, work. Um, I always find that it boosts my running, you know, I can kind of decrease my frequency or volume of running. And when I kind of get back at it, I always just feel this little bit of a aerobic boost from putting in a lot of that work on the bike. So um, I know that's just one little anecdote example of it, but it's interesting how um, they can all have a big effect on each other for sure.
1: Yeah, I I think a great example of this, i worked with an athlete uh, who's an Olympic trials level swimmer. So, you know, he had the like neural drive the aerobic engine but he did not have the kind of structural pieces and so he kept getting injured and uh some of that was his own kind of issues and stuff like that too but uh that was the first thing that we started to work on was just getting strong enough to handle running that much so you'd have to do a lot of cross training to start because yeah, it's like a like a airplane with way too strong of an engine. You could just rip the chassis off the thing if you actually let it go full force. Mm-hmm. So you got to kind of be careful how you're you're dealing with that. But anyways, that's just a story yeah. about how. <laughs> be careful.
0: Yeah, and um, just to give the listeners like a little bit of a number example. Um, We were kind of chatting about this study before we recorded, but there's a study by um, Yamaguchi and uh, a team, and it was just published this past year in 2023. And they looked specifically at marathon runners. And it's important to note that they only looked at male marathon runners. So they didn't look at male and female. So that's an important distinction a little bit and just the generalizability of this study. However, they found that among those that they studied, monthly training volume was indeed like the best predictor of marathon time. And they actually gave some numbers to kind of strive for essentially. So what they found is those with a higher training volume that had their longest run on average of at least 21 K or 13 miles and just their average run in general of at least 10 kilometers or 6.2 miles perform better. So I think those are two, nice solid numbers that we can really try to strive for and reach for in our training of making sure our long run is consistently over 13 miles. And eventually that our just day-to-day run is at least over 6.2 miles. So it's nice to have some numbers into it that we can actually strive for and progress our bodies to work towards a little bit.
1: Yeah, I like that. That's, that's, that was a great study. Like you said, it's a shame that they didn't you know, also study females or mm-hmm. uh you know other other kind of groups as well
0: and also like speaking of volume we can't really have a discussion about volume um if we don't talk about the all important long run of the training schedule and especially for marathon training that is so important Um, It's consistently in everyone's training plan, their long run to progress, their ability to run the distance of the 26.2 mile um, feet. So overall, what is the importance of the long run and why is it so essential in our training plan?
1: Yeah, I think the kind of first piece with it is that it's your best, you know, dry run at the, at the actual marathon. So it's preparing your body to run a long ways. Uh, and I think it's important to kind of you know bifurcate if you're trying to just run a marathon to complete it, which is which is great in its own kind of endeavor, but then having that long run be completely easy running the whole time is perfectly fine. Uh, but if you're trying to, you know, really master that marathon and do it really well, I think that's where you need to bring some intensity into that long run. Cause again, it is your best chance to simulate marathon day. Uh, So if you only ever do easy long runs and then you get to marathon day, it's going to be a struggle to kind of marry those two, you know, intensity and volume together. I think that long run is such an important dress rehearsal for race day. I know we talked about fueling a whole bunch on the last podcast. Like that's your chance to practice feeling for marathon day. That's your chance to practice wearing the gear that you're going to wear for marathon day. Make sure that nothing's chafing or irritating you. Uh, So yeah, hopefully that makes some sense for why that long run is kind of important. There's other pieces to it as well. Like uh, how it kind of brings out so much more fatigue as well. Uh, A lot of marathon running is about the cumulative fatigue that you're able to kind of carry with you. Uh, yeah, hopefully that that answers the question a little bit.
0: Yeah, of, of course it does. Um, and so like when we look at it, everyone kind of strives for like a different number of like, oh, I'm going to run up to this mileage for my long run, and then I'm going to back it down. Is there like a right distance that all runners should strive for? Um, is there like a one size fit all or does it kind of depend on the person and their goals?
1: So I I don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all. <laughs> that was a great setup question again. But, you know, that Yamaguchi study said at least 13 miles. I, I think that's on the low end for what most people would like to do. Uh, I, I think 16 to 18, you know, especially for a beginner or something like that, makes some sense. I'll say I've had some runners that have gone as far as i mean as far as 30 miles uh as part of their preparation their long run being even longer than the marathon uh but that's a very exceptional case i'd say most people end up being in that 18 to 22 mile long run uh is where a lot of somewhat advanced runners end up at
0: and as we kind of uh were chatting about too there's kind of something magical about that like 20 number like when you can hit 20 in your long run it kind of just mentally almost i feel like for a lot of people they chat about it like getting to 20 miles for their long run kind of gives them just a little bit of a mental edge of like oh yeah i can run 20 miles and then i can add on that extra 10k at the end of that um do you find that that's uh, the case with a lot of the runners that you're coaching
1: yeah there does seem to be something um, maybe magical is a strong word but there seems to be some some you know, Rubicon that we cross through and it's like, oh, I can do this. It's just a 10K left. Mm -hmm. People always say that the race is two halves, that first 20 miles and then the last 10K. But uh, yeah, there's definitely something to be said for hitting that 20 mile. It just gives you some extra confidence. But like we talked about, you know, bringing it back to that Yamaguchi study, like you can look at your training volume as a whole. So for maybe somebody that, uh, works you know most days of the week or something like that. Where we getting a bigger long run, isn't as much of an option. Well, then you can tweak that schedule and have two maybe medium long runs, where you're doing, let's just say, you know, 13 miles, then two days in a row instead of having one big, 18 mile, 20 mile, 22 mile long run. Uh, you're getting that volume in just across two days. Yeah, that that would be one way to kind of adapt that.
0: And with that long run, in order to better like simulate that marathon, as you kind of mentioned, like we're not going to set ourselves up well, if it's just a very easy run for that entire long run. So what are some ways that we can structure that long run to better, um, simulate that marathon condition and simulate the fatigue that we're going to feel during the marathon?
1: Yeah. So There's kind of two pieces to that. One is you can carry more cumulative fatigue going into that long run. So that's where, especially that like month out from the race and you feel like crap and you've got a big long run, that's usually where you're starting to get into those, you know, highest volume or distance long runs that you're going to have. But you're also running the most mileage the rest of the week too at that time. And that's on purpose. That's so that you can feel tired and fatigued and then run for a long time. Uh, so I think that's that's kind of one piece to it. The other is you can kind of do it more acutely where you add a workout layer into it where you you know run faster than marathon pace for parts of that long run, and that's going to fatigue you so that the rest of the run feels a little bit harder than it would have otherwise. And that can help simulate it to some extent, but you know, preparing for what that's actually going to feel like is, is not an easy task to do. And it doesn't necessarily make sense to go, go to the well on a lot of long runs. We don't, we don't want to simulate (laughs) that race day too closely.
0: Is there any merit to, um, doing more of like a progression run where we start slow and just kind of build and have the hardest part of that workout be at the end of that to help simulate that fatigue as well?
1: Yeah, that's an awesome uh, kind of technique as well. I I love doing a good uh, progressive long run, especially at kind of periods where, you know, I don't don't want to say like a down week, but like those transitory weeks where some of that fatigue is really setting in because with a progression run, I tend to leave them a little bit more open-ended. You know, we talked a lot about RPE the last time. So I will stop, giving a specific pace and start giving more, hey, just progress from a three out of 10, get to the point where you're running an eight out of 10 at the end. And people can kind of, you know, plot the the course of that on their own uh, based on how they're feeling. And that gives you the ability to make that workout harder or easier depending on where you're at and how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. So yes, cool. I'm a huge fan of those progression or progressive runs.
0: Cool. Um, I ran grandma's marathon this last, um, June and one of my, my longest run that I did, um, I was pretty happy with how I set up this long run and I feel like it worked really well for me, but, um, there was, it was Memorial day weekend, um, before the race and there was like a local 5k. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to run to this 5k. And that amounted to about like 18 miles or so. Um, and then to progress me up to that longest run about 21 miles or so. I ran that 5k and it was a very rough 5k. However, I feel like that helped me kind of simulate that fatigue a little bit more and helped me kind of uh, tolerate that intensity, although it was faster than race pace. um, It was a lot of fatigue and almost mentally it kind of assisted in allowing me to kind of fight some of that fatigue that I felt on race day too. So that's just kind of one example um, of a way that someone could structure it as well.
1: Yeah, I'm a huge fan of of that, especially because then you probably get closer to a simulation mentally of, you know, racing, there's a crowd, there's other people, uh, you know, we talked to, about the specificity of demands. Well, that's about as close as you're going to get. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So I like that a lot.
0: Cool. All righty. And then if we progress into training further, there is kind of the uh, next category of intensity, essentially, like how hard we are running. And we chatted last time with our RPE um, um, conversation about the different zones. So we have like a zone one that's very, very easy conversational pace. We have a zone two where we're starting to accumulate more lactate, but we're dealing with it pretty well. And we're able to um, have that kind of threshold pace. And then there is that really, really high zone three where that lactate is building and we can only kind of tolerate that um, pace for a, a short amount of time. So, um, with our overall training plan for the marathon, like how do we best distribute that load between zone one, zone two, and zone three? Um, what is kind of the best way for us to distribute those training intensities in order to have a really great marathon?
1: Yeah. So basically you'll roughly have an 80, 20 distribution of that's kind of that zone one to zone two threshold. So you'll have 80% of your running and your volume. That's easy. You're going to have about 20% of it. That's going to then, you know, be lactate inducing. Uh, inside of that, it's going to depend kind of where you are in training. The as, as you get closer to the goal event, you'll kind of have, an increase in that specific kind of pace. The nice thing is with the marathon, you're really in zone two for that, where as like, as opposed to a half marathon, uh, you start to kind of be basically zone, like right at the beginning of zone three uh, for something like that, or like a 10K and a 5K, which is still long enough that you need a lot of training volume to support it. But you spend a lot of time in that kind of lactate producing state. Uh, So the marathon, you know, if we kind of look at those specific zone one, zone two, zone three distributions, it's still probably 80% zone one, you know, maybe 15%, 18%, something like that in that zone two, and then only two to 5% in the zone three.
0: Cool. Roughly. Yeah. And in doing some research, there is a ton of really solid evidence of meta analyses, systematic reviews that time after time recommend that training regimen of having a low a high volume of low intensity running so like that 80 percent where we are low intensity and then that um very low um kind of distribution of that really high intensity or that or that 20 percent and um That is kind of what they found that a lot of professionals train at as well. Um, And so that has time and time again, been supported as one of the best ways to organize that training and to kind of distribute those um, overall intensity levels overall. And we'll kind of include some of those in the show notes, but it's cool to see that that is well supported by the evidence as well as what a lot of the professionals are doing.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a key kind of point too. That's what most of the pros are doing. If you look at most of the, you know, weekend warrior, like amateur runners that are training at a high intensity, many are not following that and are doing, you know, 60-40 or something like that and are wondering why they're always injured. Uh, as a coach, a lot of times my job isn't to spur people on, it's actually to to kind of pull the reins and, and get them to run easier and slower. Uh, way too often do I see people training too hard all the time.
0: I'm with you. And I was one of those people that would constantly train at a higher intensity way back in the day. But as I've um, listened to the research and kind of evolved my training a little bit, it's so important to have those slower runs and to slow yourself down. And if it's something that you're not used to, it's really challenging to do to like rain it back and kind of keep that intensity low. Cause you'll start slow and then you'll be running and then you'll just want to like start to speed up. And so Having something that warns you and something that tells you to slow back down, whether it is, um, you know, based off of your RPE and trying to stay within that RPE of three to four out of 10. Um, But I find a good little technique is just, can you have a conversation? If you are trying to run slow and you can have a conversation with somebody, awesome. You're at the right pace. If you can't have a conversation with someone, that means that you need to slow down a little bit.
1: Yeah that that's you know we always call that the talk test like if you can start to talk you're probably in that zone one and you're you're pretty safe uh yeah, everyone everyone thinks that they're the exception to that 80 20 kind of rule uh i remember like reading sebco's training who's it was a you know Olympic champ world he's actually now the president of the world track and field association but uh anyways he had a distribution of training that looked a lot more like 60 40 have uh, you read his training logs? And so everyone, you know, it's this high intensity, lower volume, you know, relative. Well, it turns out that he didn't count any of his warm-ups or cooldowns as actual training or running. So he was actually still doing the high volume, and it was roughly 80 20 if you included the four mile warm-ups and cooldowns here and there and all those kind of things. Uh, now
0: that is interesting. That is that's kind of funny. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and there's there's countless examples of those you know old old timey uh, pros who trained really hard. Well, yeah, they they just didn't count jogging around as training volume. So, you know, the the logs are incomplete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when we look mm-hmm. at it, it's easy to think, oh, I just need to train more like them. Well, yeah, but we we track every single step versus those you know in the old times it was it just logged the workout portion Mm -hmm. and didn't care about warming up or cooling down, even though they did warm up and cool down.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I mean, since we're at that slow pace for like 80% of our training, there's a lot of people that I found athletes that say like, well, why should I do that? What's the benefit of that? I don't feel like I'm progressing. I don't feel like improving. So um, is there anything in our physiology that makes that, slow running so beneficial to us and can help to boost our performance overall?
1: Yeah, there's, there's a lot, uh, as a beginner, that's actually when like those slower paces are when we're, uh, increasing our cap capitalization. So we're building more, you know, highways or more bloodways, uh, so our body can, kind of transport more blood to our muscles. Uh, that's kind of piece one, piece two, uh, if anyone remembers the powerhouse of the cell, mitochondria, uh, we build mitochondrial density and uh, kind of the efficiency of the mitochondria in, improves, especially at those slower uh, efforts as we're starting up. So those are two of the big kind of key pieces as a beginner. That' why it's so important to have some of that slow, slower volume. Uh, the other kind of big piece to it is the of replenishment of our glycogen stores. So if we can run easier, it puts less strain on our bodies and uh we don't burn up as much fuel. And it allows that to kind of you know recharge. There's also the recharging like the you know actual recovering uh that we get to do a lot of that slower running is for recoverability. Uh, so I I think you know, this isn't necessarily something that we talked about, but like the singles versus doubles uh, kind of conversation. I'm in general, a huge fan of those doubles because when you double, you get basically double the release of the HGH and testosterone and a lot of these kind of recoverability hormones, as well as developmental hormones. Uh, So you're able to kind of perform fresher more often Uh, as opposed to if you go all in singles volume, it can, you know, empty those glycogen stores and put more fatigue into the system, Uh, which can be a benefit sometimes, especially in marathon training. Like you might want to put more fatigue into the system, but, uh, you can get more training volume with less strain by doing some of those doubles, uh, yeah, those are are a lot of why we do some of those slower runs that and it allows us to run more and, and, and kind of tolerate more volume, which like we've talked about the structural demands of running 26.2 miles. You can't do all of that at race pace. Otherwise, that's just not sustainable. So by doing more volume at these easy paces, we build up the tolerance for actual running as well.
0: Mm-hmm. That's an important distinction. And just to clarify, Jack, um, what do you mean by doubles versus singles?
1: Yeah. So, uh, like a double running day would be you run four miles in the morning and four miles in the evening, as opposed to running, you know, a singles would be like running eight miles a day. Uh, yeah, just by splitting that run up, you can kind of have a better effect.
0: Cool. And uh, I mean, two really good big points um, from that. And correct me if I'm wrong on this from a physiological standpoint, but when we're talking about building more mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, that's exactly where we produce energy. And that's exactly where we are um, using that lactate. And so if we have more of that mitochondria, in theory, we should be able to tolerate higher workloads and larger amounts of lactate, correct?
1: Yeah, that's 100% right. Cool. It's the powerhouse of the cell. So if we have yeah. more of them, we can kind of train and produce at a higher level. So,
0: yeah. Cool. And then also, like you said, um, as point number two, um, recoverability is so important and adding that volume. Like if we have slow runs, we're going to have less fatigue and we can recover quicker, which means that we can get out and run again sooner versus if we have a really hard workout, we need to recover from that. And it's going to be a little bit before we can put that same effort forward. So um, to kind of connect to our discussion on volume and ways to safely progress volume, this is one of those key ways to run slow. And that way we can you know, increase our mileage, increase our volume in a way that isn't going to be overly demanding for our body and for our structures and everything else in our body and can help um, enhance that volume and decrease the risk for injuries as well.
1: Yeah. I think this kind of brings up a point that I, I think would be important for a lot of people to make too is when we talk about volume and we're talking about mileage a lot of times, but we can also be talking about time. So if you see like your favorite pro runners doing, you know, whatever three by 5k well for them that's you know 15 minutes or 17 minutes well if you go out and do that same workout that's probably more than you can handle so instead of doing that do the three by 15 minutes uh with like a similar amount of rest as opposed to trying to emulate their volume try to emulate the kind of you know structure of the workout even that i still think you should probably adapt but if you're going to just try and copy and paste from whatever uh, your favorite pro runner is doing. Just remember that their volume is at at a different level than yours. Mm -hmm. I
0: I feel like I see that a lot because I follow a lot of professionals on Strava. And it's very easy to say, oh, this runner runs at like low seven, high six minute pace. And so I should be running at that pace too. However, that is their zone one, like that's their easy pace. They're able to have a conversation at that pace. And so it's important to know that distinction when you're looking at the professionals and what they're running and what their workouts are, is there is that physiological and adaptation difference between those professionals and just us trying to um, perfect our marathon overall. And maybe we don't qualify for the elite um, kind of status. So it's important to know that distinction in intensity in volume, in pace, all of that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, that's, I think, an important important point to kind of keep in mind.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so we've chatted about slow runs and why slow running is so important. And now we need to get into what's the benefit of adding in that 20% of fast running and at threshold and above. And um, it's important to know last episode, Jack, you had kind of mentioned that we need workouts to induce a level of acidosis in order for us to learn how to deal with that lactate and in order for us to understand how to clear that. And I feel like this, these faster runs play directly into that and in trying to get those adaptations.
1: Yeah, 100%. This is that, that kind of time to to do it. The way that I kind of see it in my head is, you know, we talked about the slow running and all that to kind of stretch our ability to run a marathon. So we need to be able to first kind of cover 26.2 miles. And to do that, we'll go at a slower pace, but then we add in that 20% to kind of help pull that pace down. We run faster so that, you know, you can well run faster by having that endurance background And then adding in the speed, that's really kind of the part that makes, you know, the ability to run a marathon fast, like that's an important piece to it, but you have to be able to run a marathon first. Uh, So that's why I think we've kind of structured this conversation the way that we have to, because that 80% is the important part. Mm. Uh, But yeah, to run faster than, than threshold, I think is kind of an important piece of marathon training, which... Is funny because you're really, you know, a good marathon isn't necessarily faster than threshold, or like marathon pace is not faster than threshold pace. We, you know, talked about cardiac drift and, and about that fatigability uh, a little bit the last time. And that's how marathon pace becomes anaerobic by the end of the race uh, because it is fatiguing and it is, you know, trying to do that for two plus hours. Uh, so you have to train your body to be ready to to deal with those kind of things. And like we talked about with the central governor, you know, we need to show him or her that, hey, it's okay. We've been here before. Don't freak out. Like, don't start shutting all the systems down. Uh, so, yeah, that's why we kind of train faster than threshold base is because that threshold or that, that, lactate is going to come up at some point during the race. And we want to be prepared for it and not, not have our body freak out when it you know, starts to see that entering the system. Mm-hmm.
0: In terms of RPE, we kind of chatted about those slow runs should be at an RPE of three to four. Is there a minimum RPE we should be at to make sure that we are actually in that correct intensity and making sure that we are running fast enough to make that happen?
1: Yeah, we we kind of talked about it like that. Six and a half is roughly where that that kind of next threshold is. Uh, so, yeah, running into the like sevens and eights uh, is going to make some sense. There's not often that we'll go nine or ten outside of race day. Uh, yeah, that that's getting too close to the to the sun, like Icarus. We we want to be at a safe distance. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, um, we've kind of chatted about this already, but why isn't why is it that we can't always train at that pace?
1: Well, especially in the marathon, there's this kind of I've seen it called a bunch of different things, but like a dead zone theory where marathon pace is it's too hard to like you're not getting any recover like recovery at that pace um uh, it's like it's it's too hard you're catabolic at that stage, so you're breaking your body down but it's not a hard enough stimulus to actually cause you to really improve. So it's this kind of weird middle zone. Uh, So that's part of why we can't just do it all the time is because we would just break our bodies down if we ran at especially marathon pace all the time. Uh, And that's part of why we have that training distribution that, you know, have mostly easy, some kind of medium work, especially because the marathon really is a lot at that medium intensity and then a little bit more, uh, or just a, like, well, a little bit less, but a little bit of that higher intensity work to kind of teach our body how to handle that lactate and acidosis.
0: Um, and yeah, I mean, you're, you're exactly right. We need that recovery and we can't expect to, continue to run fast and fast and fast and fast and fast and not end up breaking down and that's kind of the way we lead to injuries and so by um sticking to that 8020 we can make sure that we're very healthy in the manner of building, um, volume, but also making sure that we're getting those adaptations that are necessary for that marathon to be able to tolerate that lactate, deal with that lactate, clear it. Um, and so we need to make sure that we're, um, progressing that volume to deal with the 26.2, but then we add that little bit extra, that 20% extra to deal with all of that lactate, that intensity, that, um, fatigue that we feel on race day.
1: Yeah, I think it's an important kind of, piece to keep in mind with that. Uh, I think a good kind of thing to talk about then too, is how to structure those workouts and and what they can kind of look like. And each person is going to be at a different level. So I'm not going to be too specific with, you should start with 12 by 400. Well, I I have no clue, you know, where, where you're at, uh, whoever you are listening to this, but in general, when we start marathon training that first, you know, 16 weeks out or 12 weeks out or however long out, You'll start with some short reps with a lot of rest, but they're going to be at that eight or nine kind of intensity. They'll be shorter and faster, uh, but you'll have plenty of kind of rest to recover. It's quite a bit faster than marathon, like goal pace. And then the next week when you come out, it's a little bit you know slower of a pace, but it's, it's more specific of a pace. You're getting closer to marathon pace and you're going to get a little less recovery. And if you can kind of keep that progression up so that by the time, you know, it's two weeks before marathon, you're doing a pretty long run at pretty close to marathon pace with little to no rest. Like that's a good kind of progression of those, those workouts. Uh, There's something called the cone of specificity. Basically it, it kind of funnels you into, into your race day. Uh, You know, you can reach out and and we can talk more specifically what would make sense for each person but uh i think that's a good you know blanket you know diagram for people to kind of wrap their heads around
0: that's a really good point and i don't think i've ever heard it described exactly like that but i really like that of starting with um you know um shorter duration higher intensity and slowly but surely kind of build that into longer intervals maybe a little bit slower overall, but much more, um, similar to what you're going to deal with on race day and during the marathon overall itself. And as your training improves and as you get more volume and you get more used to all that training load, you're going to be able to tolerate those longer intervals better and better and better as you train more. And as you get closer to race day overall.
1: And I'll say to you, like, you know, a good training program, is not every single week is an exact, like. (laughs) the same workout you're starting with 200s and then 300s and then 400s like it's not necessarily that direct it could be i guess but i think that would get kind of boring and monotonous in its own right uh so you can kind of do that almost two steps forward one step back in a way where you then go back and do another shorter workout something similar to what you've done in the past but then you can see some of the progress that you've hopefully made Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think a lot of times people think intervals are always meant to just be about the fast part of the interval where I think, especially, especially for a marathon, the important part is actually the recovery piece. If you can get that recovery piece to get faster and, and for a lot of times what that looks like in an actual interval session is that you're running the same time interval, but that recovery Lap is at a faster pace, like you're recovering easier, and that workload is actually feeling easier at the same kind of pace. I think that's like a real kind of hallmark of fitness is the recoverability that you have.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really, really good point. And you're able to shorten that recovery standpoint and just recover quicker overall. Is that kind of what you're saying?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, what. One of my favorite kind of workouts to do, and and uh, especially as somebody's getting a little bit more advanced in a marathon, is you do let's just say you know five k at marathon pace. You'll do one k at you know ten k pace. Uh, so something that's faster than threshold, and it's kind of hard, and you'll get into a little bit of a debt, and then you have to do another you know one k or two k at marathon pace again. So it's about learning how to deal with some of that lactate and some of that fatigue and like recover at marathon pace. So it starts to kind of teach your body to, to let marathon pace be easier and for, Mm -hmm. for a more, you know, or a less advanced runner, maybe that looks like, uh, like a two, one, one kind of workout. That's one of my favorite like two minutes at marathon pace, one minute faster, and then one minute at, marathon pace again uh so you know it's only a four minute kind of rep but you still kind of spike that lactate and then have to settle back in uh where i think the traditional interval you know you're used to kind of going hard and then being able to just be done but i love those kind of workouts where you have to spike it and then settle and learn how to, to kind of deal with that lactate that's one of my favorite types of workouts
0: Sounds like a killer workout and like you said it you know really highlights the specificity of that to what you're going to deal with on race day in the marathon.
1: Yeah, it simulates you know running into a hill or mm-hmm. uh you know, especially once you get to a really high level, like it stops you you start to race the person next to you and one way to kind of beat that person is to you know spike spike some lactate. If you're better at handling it than the person next to you, they, you know, will break and you won't, and that's mm-hmm. that's kind of a way to you know beat that person. Mm-hmm. Good point. Um, one thing you
0: kind of made mention to you that I'm curious to ask you about, Jack, and I think this is probably a very common question that individuals training for a marathon have. How long should our lead up or like training cycle for that marathon go? Should we start 12 weeks out? Should we start 16 weeks out? Should we start longer than that? But what's an appropriate like timeframe for us to properly prep ourselves to tolerate the demands of the marathon?
1: Yeah, it's a really great question. Uh, To some extent, the answer is always, it depends. Uh, You know, if you have a, a ton of experience and you've already been doing some base building, 12 weeks is probably about the minimum amount of time I'd like to see for like a dedicated marathon build. Uh, 16 to 20 weeks tends to to be a little bit more ideal, at least from my perspective, because you need a few weeks, usually for most people, uh, at least that I end up working with, you just need a few weeks to get the foundation set where we want it to be before starting to kind of build up. Uh, again, if you have more experience, you can kind of cut some of that out and and make it a little bit shorter. Uh, and I'll say sometimes you'll even have periods that are a little bit longer than that. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I know you're, you're having John Liddell on, uh, who's an athlete that I've, I've worked with and we've done some blocks that are closer to, you know, 30 weeks, but then we've also had blocks where it's, uh, we've had quite a few of these lately where, It's marathon, you know, a week or two of recovery. And then six weeks later is another marathon. So you're doing these kind of almost mini blocks. Uh, But then typically after doing like stacking one or two of those, you need to take a bigger break after that. Uh, So, yeah, it's going to depend a lot. That was a a long-winded answer of, of saying it depends. But 12 to 20 weeks is, I think, a normal window. Of time, ideally probably 16 to 18,
0: 16 to 20. Great. Um, I think one thing that we can definitely ch- chat about in part three, cause I think this is one of those like little things that sets us up really well is kind of that base training period before we actually start building for that marathon. Today's been a lot more about building to that marathon and specifically training for it. But I think that, um, setting ourselves up with like a good base period, um, can help that process out a little bit.
1: Yeah. I, I think that makes some sense. We've, we've been talking for a while already. I feel like, and I've, I've rambled on enough. So,
0: <laughs> and I mean, um, you've kind of said it yourself, but I think it's an, it's an important reminder too, that everyone has a different goal for the marathon, you know, um, some of us are going to be just wanting to finish and complete the whole distance. Some of us are going for PR, some are going for Boston, some are going for Olympic trials qualifications. So, um, that it depends lends really, really nicely to everyone's different and everyone needs a different thing. And everyone is going to train a little bit differently. So I think it's important for everyone to, understand that aspect as, and and know that sometimes it's important to chat with a coach or chat with someone who can help you kind of zero in on the right way to train and the right way to build based off your specific goals that you have for the event.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point because a lot of times, you know, where a coach brings the most value is applying those principles that are probably in that, that book, you know, that has a training plan in the back. uh, But how do you make that book work for you? Uh, You know, for a lot of people, they pick up whatever, Jack Daniels or, or a Fitz book or, you know, Brad Hudson or any of these like great coaches that are out there. uh, But maybe, maybe you don't work a Monday to Friday like that, or you're not a professional runner. Like some of those kind of assume you are, Uh, you know, how do you, adapt those principles to make them work for you. That's, that's where I think a coach really brings a lot of value as well as obviously the knowledge resource and and everything like that too. But the ability to, when something changes or something happens, well, how do I, you know, keep the spirit of this and the, even if I can't follow the letter of the, of the training plan.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I wanted to add at the end of this is there's a, there's a really nice quote and I'm, um, I know you've heard this too, Jack, so I'm curious to see your kind of reaction or opinion of it as well, but it's by Steve Magnus, who is a great performance coach out there, puts out a lot of really good content and books, um, out there, but he essentially says, quote, get out and move. Most should be easy to moderate. So you can keep coming back day after day. Some should be moderate to hard and very occasionally you should go see God and to remind yourself what going to the well is like. And I think that's a great summary of essentially what we, what we just said and kind of what we just mentioned in this whole process of training for a marathon.
1: Yeah, exactly. Run mostly easy, you know, go kind of hard some of the time and sprinkle in a few pretty hard efforts. Uh, I think that's a great kind of recipe to success.
0: Wonderful. Well, thanks
1: again for joining me,
0: Jack. I greatly appreciate it. And I'm excited to come back for part three for all the little things that we can kind of sprinkle into, um, further help us out on race day.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me, Matt. Uh, we could fill, you know, a 24 hour period talking about training for a marathon, but hopefully we've, we've, uh, answered quite a few questions and covered some ground.
0: Wonderful. Awesome. Thanks everyone for listening and as always happy and healthy training.